Tony Cononova bought an interesting business, ghostwriting and editing for people who want to self-publish a book. Clients include authors who want to be the next J.K. Rowling, to older folks recording their lives in the form of a memoir, to convicted criminals in prison. It was a fully remote business and a small one, but Tony saw this as an opportunity to take the skills she's developed in Silicon Valley, she worked at Google when she bought the business, and make an underperforming business grow. Buying small also meant less risk, which was attractive to Tony. As you'll hear, this was not an all-in acquisition. At 500K, it was certainly big enough to matter, but not so big that it would mean financial ruin if it didn't work out. This is not the full-time searcher expecting to go full-time in their acquisition. And I think you'll appreciate hearing this somewhat unusual approach. Enjoy my conversation with Tony Cononova of Right My Wrongs. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. August Felker is a two-time successful searcher. First with a traditional search fund. The second time around, he did a self-funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies, an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program. A great no-risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers. They've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher. Check out oberly-risk.com, O-B-E-R-L-E hyphen risk.com, link in the show notes. Tony Cononova, thank you for joining me today on Acquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. Tony, we met at a meetup in San Francisco last year. At the time, uh, I believe you were nursing the wounds of an acquisition that you had attempted, but that the deal had fallen apart. Uh, we'll get a brief version of that story. But fast forward, and you now have successfully acquired a different business. Uh, it's a service business for people who want to self-publish a book. So really interesting business, and we're going to learn all about that. Um, but you were at Google when you decided to start looking to buy a business. So tell us how somebody doing well for herself in Silicon Valley decides to go out and buy a business. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, I've been at Google for nine years, um, and uh, only the last five years we were in California. So I basically, when I just came to California, I worked uh, at Google's incubator, Area 120. That was um, that's basically like a Y combinator inside Google. Uh, at least it, it was positioned that way that time, and where employees work on their own ideas, uh, and basically. When I was there, I worked on a very high-tech uh, uh, machine learning project. That, that was my idea, but I myself am not very technical. Uh, and I, I think, so basically that product that I worked on in the incubator later joined another area of Google that was more chill, and it, it kind of became, became an internal tool. Uh, but that was kind of my first... Uh, 
glance into the startup world, <laughs> so into the real uh, Bay Area mentality. And I, I felt like I, I'm actually quite interested in that, like, yeah, that doing a startup, you're never your own boss, actually. It, it wasn't even a real startup, but yeah, I felt like uh, when you have investors and uh, basically, like, whatever you work on, like, you're never your own boss, but like <laughs> you, you're you're still uh, probably at a at an interesting place when 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 you're the only investor. So that that's probably how I in initially got interested in the idea. And then uh, at at that point, I already read uh, Walker Dibble's book uh, Buy Then Build, and mm -hmm. I, I was interested in the in this uh, comparison of like outsmarting the startup game. Even though I I, I don't really agree that like you can compare a high tech high growth startup with like something that's more of a lifestyle business but it, it was interesting to see that you can actually acquire a company and have this medium risk medium reward uh thing uh for yourself it, it it's very anti silicon valley i think yeah well but it sounds like um you actually are uh, but you like are you are you saying that you like the Silicon Valley culture or that you reject and don't like the Silicon Valley culture or you like it but you also like an alternative so you you like it all Yeah, I like it all. <laughs> okay. Uh it also sounds like you you one of the things I mean you like the idea of a high growth high risk rocket ship startup um, but one of the features of that that you don't like is that you are not your own boss. So classically, entrepreneurship means being your own boss, means autonomy, means freedom. Um, and in fact, in Silicon Valley startups, um, it, that's often not really the case, be it your investors or whomever. There are many, many stakeholders in these really high risk, um, these high risk ventures. So in the kind of the buy then build model, you really, you really could be, you know, your own king or queen. And that it was something that was important to you and appealed to you. Yes, I, I think uh, the freedom part is is the important word here. Um, so th there is never real freedom, but I think freedom is my key value. Okay. <laughs> now you said that this was all this decision of yours was after you read Buy Then Build, but how did you were you introduced to Buy Then Build the book? Uh, initially, I was following one Russian blogger uh, who writes about investing and startups, etc. And yeah, and yeah, surprisingly, I, I first saw some uh, Facebook post from that Russian blogger, uh, mm -hmm. and then I saw another Russian entrepreneur also writing a review of that. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't maybe, maybe that was when I read the book already, but at that point. Uh, the book was really cheap on Kindle. <laughs> now it's <on> Kindle. <laughs> and yeah, and I, I just, I, I think it was something like $1 or $2 book uh, on Kindle. And yeah, I just went and yeah, bought it and read it. And, and these Russian bloggers are talking about the buy then build model and, and buy then build the book. Are they Russians based in the US or Russians based in Russia? I mean, is this, is search something that's happening in Russia as well? Uh. So you cannot really do the SBA loan in Russia, obviously, sure. but uh, it was just like one of the many posts and it was a Russian blogger based in Russia. Yes. Okay. And so is there, do you, do you have any more visibility? I'm just curious, any more visibility into whether buying small businesses, is this a trend in Russia as well? 
I think there are different, uh, like very different risks and rewards there. So, because here you can buy something, uh, leverage uh, someone else's capital, or uh, and then you can also sell. I think in Russia it would be uh, like Russia is not a place where lawyers have as much <laughs> power as here. You, yeah, you, you can just. I, I would I would be very much afraid to buy something in in Russia. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you, you, um, are, have read the book. You like the idea. You like, you're drawn to freedom. Uh, yeah, what, actually, then, initially I didn't yes. like the idea that much. I, I, I thought oh. like, oh, this is just about those, uh, boring businesses uh, that are offline businesses, uh, like some factories or retail. Like I, I wouldn't really do that stuff. Uh, and, and, and then I, I kind of forgot about the book for a year or two. Mm-hmm. And but then what then, happened? What happened a year or two later? Uh, and then the pandemic started, so I started spending more time online, uh, and I saw that there was a lot of reminders. Uh, so I, I think I signed up for some email lists, and there were all these reminders that I didn't finish some course uh, with Bind and Build or something like that, and. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then I saw that they were uh, recruiting for the acquisition lab. And yeah, I, I, I think I'm just uh, perceptive to marketing. And I signed, yeah, I, and this marketing just in, in influenced me and I, I signed up for the acquisition lab. So you went through Walker Dibble's acquisition lab? Yes. And at, at, during that process, did quote unquote boring businesses or traditional businesses become more interesting to you? Because in fact, the two businesses that you looked at that we'll talk about, neither of those were traditional, quote unquote, boring businesses. They were both online kind of digital businesses. So yes. tell me tell me about your thinking. Did it? Do you still find the, the manufacturing and that stuff less appealing or did it eventually become appealing? Uh, so when I... When through the acquisition lab, my target statement was still uh, the um, location-independent businesses, and it mostly mm-hmm. means online. But also, mm-hmm. I saw that yeah, there were other people looking for online businesses. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I think it, it, it's also about freedom. That like it, I, I wouldn't want like go somewhere in Texas to just buy some factory because then I would need to spend the next five or 10 years in, at that factory. And <laughs> if, if, yeah. uh, okay. And okay. So actually it's great that you went through the lab and had your target statement because you can tell me with some real specificity what that target statement looked like. What, what, how did you describe yourself and the type of business that you were looking for? Yeah, so initially I was looking more for a software as a service business, um, uh, but the target statement was basically a location uh, independent business eligible for an SBA loan. <laughs> that was it, and that's mm-hmm. already pretty rare. Did you have a, some price or valuation constraints around that EBITDA? <sighs> yeah, I wanted it to be profitable and basically for like for it to be eligible for the SBA loan it needs to be profitable for the last three years at least and ideally having a growth like moderate growth trajectory so I was kind of relying on on SBA to like kind of uh, protect me from taking too many risks 
Sure. But in terms of size, I mean, it, profitable, there's a wide range there that could be, yeah. you know, earning a dollar a year, or earning a million dollars a year. How did you, how did you filter that down, more, narrow that down? Yeah, I think initially I was looking for something with a profit, uh, uh, like uh, around 400 to 800K. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but then, uh, but considering that like half of it will go into paying out the SBA loan. And then when I started looking around, uh, uh, basically I thought that it, like the actual profit number is not as important. It like, um, yeah, I, I think like in the end, I started looking for even like 50K profits because I, I realized that I don't have to be on it full time if it is a smaller deal. And there is also less stress if there is less pers- like loans, less liabilities, basically. Well, OK, so help me understand, because uh, buying a business that's generating $50,000 a year is very different than buying one that's generating eight hundred. Um, both in terms of I mean, uh, on in a variety of ways, it's very different. Yes. Um, and then also full-time or not. So, so what was your vision? Did you imagine buying this business and becoming an owner-operator like a, like a searcher would? Or was it more like a side thing? You were going to do it on the side or and keep your day job in Silicon Valley? Or did it just depend? It depended on the type of business that you bought, and that would kind of dictate what you, what you did. So paint a picture for me. What did you envision? Uh, um, yeah, I think uh, I was kind of leaning towards these smaller businesses because they still could have a significant growth potential. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I think TLDR is that it would depend on the business. Uh, I, I never thought that like, oh, that will really be my career to like buy a business and then like spend 10 years doing just this one business. I really like the idea that you can roll up some smaller businesses, et cetera. And yeah, I, I guess I, I just, I, I'm, I became an optimist <laughs> while I, uh, like while living in Silicon Valley. So I just thought like, okay, I'll, I'll just get something to like, to kind of learn how it works. And then I'll, maybe I'll buy another business or I'll see, but like, if it is profitable, then probably it wouldn't go like completely to ashes. Okay. Okay. So, so, so this is helpful. So you, you, you're imagining buying, maybe not too risky, maybe not too big a business, something that, um, you know, if it's profitable, it's probably not going to go to zero, um, but it's not going to become... Which turned out to be not true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we'll get into that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but something that was probably going to be something on the side, maybe you dipped in and out of it. Maybe you gave it full time for a month here or there, but it was really not going to be your main, main thing. You were still going to basically stick to your Silicon Valley career working for, at the time, Google, maybe startups later, maybe other big tech companies. Um, and it was almost like an experiment. Um, it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't a huge career pivot. It was more of kind of like a financial experiment. Is that a fair characterization? Yes, and there was also an option of taking something that's like non-very techy and maybe turn it into a startup later, as like as okay. per the book. Uh, and I think there is still this option, but I yeah, I just wanted to get something that wouldn't limit me too much. That like that still has this option of doing it on the side or turning it into a big thing and just see how it goes. Okay. 
Optionality, freedom. It's all about, <laughs> so it's yes. all about, huh? Okay. So you, you start looking. Um, and t- so tell us about this, um, this B2B software business that you, you got close on, but ultimately didn't get. Tell us a quick version of that story. Wouldn't it be great to have experts at your back when buying a business? People to help you polish up your pitch and processes as you go to market as a searcher, then help you evaluate opportunities once you get some deal flow. Such experts exist, buy-side advisors, but they'll cost you to the tune of tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars. But another option exists, the Acquisition Lab. The lab is a do-it-with-you buy-side advisory service, not do-it-for-you. Founded by Walker Dibel, author of Buy Then Build, the lab represents Walker's vision for what is most needed to make a searcher successful and available at an accessible price. It's cohort-based, and you will come out the other side of your cohort prepared to go to market as a savvy searcher with a tight message and process so brokers take you seriously, pre-approved for a loan, and with an entire community at your disposal to help you along the journey to buying a business. To learn more, check out acquisitionlab.com. Link in the show notes. Yeah, so basically right after I graduated from uh, the acquisition lab, I just did some search through brokers uh, on on the popular websites. Uh, and um, I found uh, like a business that fit my initial target criteria pretty fast in maybe like four weeks after I graduated from the uh, acquisition lab. And it, uh, it was a, uh, a software company uh, based in, on, on the East Coast. Um, the owner was retiring um, and uh, they were growing somewhere like 20 to uh, 30% a year for the last few years. Uh, the company was in existence for 15 years. Um, and uh, yeah, the... the there were some things that that could be improved. So it was not fully remote, but with the pandemic, it actually became kind of eligible for the, uh, like being remote only. And I mm-hmm. even uh, flew to the East Coast and met the owner. And uh, basically I, I had the letter of intent. It was accepted, made most of the due diligence. Uh, and... Um, then uh, after that visit, like maybe a week later, the owner sends me an, uh, an email that um, uh, I decided not to sell my company to you. And then I try to call him. The broker uh, calls him. The principal of the broker company calls him, and he just doesn't pick up the phone and doesn't answer emails. And wow, <laughs> yeah, total ghosted. Well, he didn't ghost you because he sent you a note. But then after that, he wouldn't he totally yeah. unresponsive. That must have been incredibly frustrating. What, how, how were you like really emotionally invested? Were you getting pretty excited about this? No, maybe like actually like while doing. I, now I'm thinking that I dodged the bullet because I, I was way less comfortable with the industry uh, than with my current business. Uh, it was so like when I actually met the guy and like uh, had a tour of the office, etc. I already understood that it like it, it would be really hard for me to like do exactly what he does. Uh, mm-hmm. And that like, it, and it's just like also a very, very complex technical space. So the owner was not technical. That That's why I like the business initially. 
but mm-hmm. it, it it's it i i didn't have a clear vision on how to grow it other than like oh it was growing before and uh like it would be growing further and like maybe i could cut some costs because the sales uh, uh, uh operation is very inefficient etc uh, so actually, it it was a similar type of opportunity with uh, the business that I actually acquired now. But at, at that point, I I think I I, I was just kind of trying to get it closed, and I I, I was lucky that he also got concerns. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I don't know what his concerns were, but uh, yeah, I, I think like if I if I acquired that business, I I would probably be in more trouble now than I am. Then you are, which yeah. and you are in trouble. Okay, we're we're still going to get there. What was it? What industry was this this SaaS business in, and and what size was it in terms of revenue and EBITDA? Mm, yeah, so it was uh, uh, the price uh, uh, that uh, I offered and that he accepted was about eight hundred k. I think the. Uh, it, uh, the seller discretionary earnings were somewhere uh, below 200k, somewhere like 180 uh, or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And what what was the industry? Just curious. Uh, it, I, I think there are very few companies in that space, so it it would. But yeah, it was basically a very unsexy software B two B software. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so you don't you don't feel comfortable saying because it might it might give away the identity of the company. Yes, uh, okay. but it was uh, basically it was a growing market, but uh, a very technical and uh, yeah, it, it it was kind of a niche market. Okay, okay, so that doesn't work out. Um, then how do you feel? Are you you're still committed to the project of buying a business, or are you just kind of yeah? What, t- where, where's your headspace after he sends you that email and says no, thank you? Uh, I uh, kind of like, yeah, I didn't expect that, but I already heard that many searchers usually go through like two or three deals that fell apart. So I I just kept looking, but this time I was kind of slower. So I didn't find anything that was meeting my criteria for a few months. Uh, And I was also kind of negligent because I still had my full-time job at Google um, so, uh, yeah, I, I just kept, uh, looking through websites and like modifying my criteria. Um, and yeah. And, and then basically I, I think like the current opportunity, uh, I, it also kind of came through my inbox. I requested the, um, uh, information and then I, I didn't even respond on, on like on, on, on the, uh, like last email or, or on the request for NDA, and then the broker called me, and yeah, and and then I kind of uh, paid attention to it and thought, okay, um, but I I think I only had like maybe two or three calls with like some other companies between uh, between uh, like the end of the previous deal and like before I made the letter of intent to this company. So some, yeah, that was maybe like three, three months when I only did like three uh, calls and didn't even extend the letter of intent. <laughs> and just curious, what sites, what websites did you use? Uh, so the usual ones, so uh, the Biz by Sell, the 
uh, Flippa, uh, Microacquire, uh, uh, the um, a Quiet Light website, and mm-hmm. I also signed up for some of the broker websites who like who were always publishing on on these main websites. Now, um, so tell us, uh, yeah, so tell us about this business that you that we know that you ended up acquiring, but but take us back to that moment where you've you've asked for the information but you're not even that interested. You're not really paying attention. The broker follows up with you. You start paying attention. And so what do you find? What What is this business and what do you like about it? Yeah, so um, actually when I uh, looked through the information memorandum, the business was positioned as a publishing house. And I thought, okay, how come, like everybody knows that the publishing industry is dying, but why is this business growing by like 30, 40% a year for again like it grows uh and uh yeah so basically then i scheduled the call with the owner uh and learned that it is actually more of an agency that helps uh, authors to edit their book get the cover uh, design uh publish on amazon apple books etc um and if you look at their website you would really wonder how is it possible that this business makes money at all? <laughs> because they, <laughs> yeah, so like, I, I mean, now the website is, looks a little bit different, but at that point I could see that like, okay, the website, like it's absolutely like invisible on mobile. There are just some like pictures that are illegible. Um, it like the design was really like something for like made in like 20 years ago or something, but it, it made sense when I learned that like most of the audience are um, or the customers these are older people who write memoirs and they are not really familiar with how to publish on Amazon or uh, do things like that. And that's why they actually need a website where like you call the owner, the owner signs you up and sends you an invoice and or takes your credit card and then you actually have someone to help you write your memoirs. Um, so there was so, a number of, yeah. Yeah. So let me just jump in to, to be very clear about what it, what it does. Essentially it's the, the it's key demographic is older people who want to write a, their own personal memoir, but not famous people, just kind of anybody, any consumer. And it is sort of an agency in that they'll provide all of the service of allowing you to self-publish this on the major platforms, namely Amazon. Do, do they also do, does your now business, does it also do ghostwriting? Yes. So basically the two main uh, lines of business were uh, editing and ghostwriting. And basically the whole uh, publishing part was kind of secondary. So uh, oh. yeah, it, like the, the, it initially started as an editing company and uh, the website was writemywrongsediting.com. Uh, so it it was like 100% editing initially. And the mm-hmm. owner w- was also an author. He wrote uh, some fiction. And basically there was a founder story <laughs> like in startups that he couldn't find an editor uh, who would like really uh, like know what what to do with their book. And then he found one. And then they uh, then he actually founded a company that uh, like provided editing services with like uh, proper customer service, proper attention to detail and quality, etc. 
but it was interesting that it was all about memoirs and fiction, not really like people who want to like write an Amazon bestseller for uh, like or like low content books, etc. That's how you normally make money on Amazon. Uh, yeah. Sorry, you normally make money on Amazon doing what kinds of books? Nonfiction. Nonfiction. Okay. Uh, so these are these are kind of mostly vanity projects. I mean, they're people writing their kind of life history. And and ghostwriting, so how much of the business is ghostwriting? Because I imagine that's a much heavier lift than editing. I mean, that's a lot more work to be doing the writing than the editing. So is that is that where the majority of revenue comes? Uh, no, previously, last year, it was uh, less than 30% of the revenue. And is that because most of the people who come to the site already have a book written? Um, at that point, yes, it, it was like okay. that. Okay. But when you do do a ghostwriting, when Write My Wrongs, your business does ghostwriting a book, that's a, that's a, a large expense, I imagine. I mean, paying a ghostwriter to write a memoir, I imagine that's a pretty expensive... I mean, how much does something like that cost? Yeah, so it starts with about 15K. Uh, for a pro- ghostwriting project, fifteen k. Yes, and and the editing projects are more like three k, five k on average. And so, how many um, memoirs are being ghostwritten by Write My Wrongs every year? Like, how many of those ghostwriting gigs do do you guys sell? I'm curious. Mm, so it's it's very unstable. So I don't remember how many. Were there last year in terms of the numbers, but like this, like when I acquired the company, there were only four uh, ghostwriting projects uh, in progress, and some mm-hmm. of them are still not finished, even though they were uh, ordered in 2021. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So, returning to your discovery of this business, so tell us more about so what you liked about it was it was growing, it was, um, even though the website was terrible, there was a method to the madness. It was targeting a demographic that, you know, wants to make a big order like this over the phone anyway. But you saw that as an opportunity to, I guess, mod, you know, a business that could be modernized. What else did you like about it? Uh, that it wasn't just growing, but also the its market was growing. So, like, the publishing mm-hmm. industry is not growing, but self-publishing inside publishing is still growing. So I, I like that it was growing and that the market was growing. And these were the two main factors that attracted me to this and like the previous opportunity. Um, uh, and I also liked the that like there was a clear area for improvement, uh, not only in terms of modernizing the websites, uh, but also they only did Google Ads uh, as an acquisition channel. So uh, like if you just add SEO, that like that, that would be already like a a huge uh, thing. Um, and then also, I like that the owner did sales. Uh, and when I started in Google, I uh, worked in sales and I knew how to basically scale sales operations. So I oh. thought, okay, yeah, uh, like I, I was uh, like a good sales coach, so I could actually train a new salesperson, um, at, even if like, even like if not everything could be uh, replicated, but I, I like my main bet was that like sales is not magic, and even if the owner was a great person uh, and a like, great salesperson, like yeah, maybe the conversion will go down, but he could be replaced, and then then 
and then it will it can become a passive business. So it kind of opens more options. Sure. And the um, founder owner doing sales, was that primarily what he was doing? Or was there other stuff that he was doing that also would need to be outsourced? Uh, so initially it was presented as he did sales uh, about 20 hours per week. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in fact, uh, there was also his wife who did all the accounting. <laughs> Uh, and uh, uh, he also, he didn't just do proactive sales, but he was also doing invoice collection and things like that that I, I didn't like fully um, kind of quantify when when I did the due diligence. But yeah, he he was actually like doing kind of sales and account management. And give us some numbers behind the business. How 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 big was it? And you know, in terms of revenue, EBITDA, and, and so on? Yeah, so last year it was uh, 600K uh, in revenue and um, about 200K in uh, seller discretionary earnings. Uh, the year before that, it was 400K in revenue and somewhere like 125 maybe on uh, in seller discretionary earnings. So basically it was growing in like profit and revenues every year for the last five years. And it was a, like significant growth. Well, if it last year it did two hundred, and the year before that it did one twenty five in cash flow, mm-hmm. and that's year four of the the five year trajectory. Like it must have what year three, two, and one must have been low, pretty low rep, pretty low profit numbers. So when the SBA did uh, uh, no, it's now year five, I think, or maybe mm-hmm. six. So actually, when SBA did their own uh, valuations, like this average revenue that they used for the uh, valuation was uh, somewhere like 150K profit per year. And so and so that would have been approximately like the average of the profit for the last three years. Yes. So then the valuation was what? What was, what was the acquisition price? Mm, so the uh, that uh, offer came with no price. Uh, so like basically, it was kind of bidding. Uh, I offered five hundred k, and that's what was accepted. Okay, so you paid a little bit over three x, according to an SDE of uh, of of the previous three years. Oh, I, SDE uh, from the previous. Uh, yeah, SBA did their valuation after I made the offer, but I, I actually just did my own calculation based on the last year profit uh, and also kind of pre-qualified it for SBA. But uh, yeah, I just uh, for me, it was like more like 2.5 on 200K rather than uh, 3 plus on 150. But considering the growth of the business, that, that was still a good deal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, two point five x is is a you know generally a, a low multiple. Did you were you surprised to have it be accepted? No, because as I said, the the owner was a great salesperson, and I knew that like I, I should divide everything he says by two. So <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. so yeah. Okay, so. Um, and, and I'm just curious, like this is a this is a pretty small deal for uh, an SBA loan. W- did you have a hard time uh, financing it or finding uh, a lender? No, uh, it, and for me, it helped that I already went through uh, like one deal uh, with First Business Bank, the one that failed. 
but uh, they already did some underwriting on me at that point and they said okay you you have a stable job outside of this uh like really clear financials it's a really good profile so if you want to reach out again uh uh, like we'll happy to fund your next acquisition and mm-hmm. yeah and basically next time i i just went to them again and yeah and basically it, it was part of the narrative that i have a job at google and uh, i don't need a business to like be that profitable it basically needs to pay back the loan but like i don't need to make an allowance for my own salary etc so that's really interesting. So in other words, they were kind of expecting you, at least for the purposes of underwriting this loan, expecting that this would not be your full-time thing, that you would continue to have a very full salary coming from a tech company, from Google. And um, they were really kind of factoring that income stream into their overall assessment of your deal. Uh so you and so the way you positioned yourself to them is no this would be this is a business acquisition that's going to be on the side it's not going to be something that I give myself full time to or that I quit my job to pursue yes okay and they um, even told me that like I will get more that they could still underwrite it if uh, I uh, quit my job and do it full time but then I will have to make larger down payment and basically the terms would be less favorable <laughs> and so what were the terms that you got can you break it down for us uh, 10% down, uh, they gave me like maybe 30K for the working capital. Um, and like the interest rate, it was kind of the, the standard for SBA at that time. And was there any seller financing? Uh, no. So basically one of the uh, parts of the story was that uh, the owner was selling because he had health issues. Uh, so very serious health issues. Uh, so initially they asked, they, they were going to ask for seller financing, but I said, mm, probably it's, it's not a good idea because he has these health issues and that's why he's selling. And then they said, okay, like maybe you just, uh, uh, like you already gave us uh, uh, your uh, house as a collateral on the loan, etc. So yeah, they, then they just waived that requirement of the seller note. Okay. Okay. Um, and returning, uh, Tony, to what you what drew you to this business. So you said in that B2B SaaS deal, like when you went and visited the business, you, you really felt like, hmm, this would be really, this doesn't feel like the most natural fit for me to come in and buy and run this business. Um, what about this business, this writing agency, ghostwriting editing agency, um, that that is kind of a skill set that you felt comfortable with? You felt You felt like you were qualified to run kind of a um, a writing agency? Yes, because uh, basically my first degree was in linguistics and literature, just in Russia. <laughs> but it, yeah, I even worked as an editor before uh, well, in a traditional publishing house and I worked as a translator. So I, I was very much familiar with the space and that was the space I, I loved just as a lifestyle. Um, oh, well, that's but, a key point. Uh, that's a really important point. I didn't realize that about you, that, you know, this was, this was, yeah, something that you had already actually worked in yourself years ago. Yeah, it, it was very different. It wasn't about self-publishing, etc. But it, at least uh, I understood the type of people that are there and um, that, yes, there, there is a lot of, so the owner told me on one of the first calls that, yeah, you, you, ju- you just have to deal 
with uh, these authors who all think that they are the next John Rowling. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and yeah, and I think that was one of the key insights into the market that, yeah, that, like that, that, yeah, that, like there, there are different names for this business model, which I wouldn't probably name right now, but I, I think the, this business model when the author actually funds the whole um, publishing process makes sense for, for this type of author. Uh, because they, they kind of absorb the risks and the rewards. And we, like, the, the company actually pub, uh, published or edited the books for some people who wrote Amazon bestsellers. Uh, but, of course, like, most people didn't really uh, end up becoming uh, Joan Rowling. So... Um, what is this yeah. phrase that, that the guy used? That you you're uh, shy about saying? No, it, uh, he didn't use it. But basically, there is a bad vibe about the um, term vanity press. Uh, but vanity uh, press. Uh, ah, yes. Okay, so that that is a term. I didn't even realize that. Okay. Yeah, and and then like some people consider it. Uh, so the vanity press was a term even like in the seventies when you actually had ah. this like print uh, companies who actually take money from the authors to publish their books. But now when, with the rise of self-publishing on Amazon, et cetera, it, you couldn't really say like something is a vanity press because you know what you're buying. <laughs> uh, but I guess, uh, yeah, but th th there was a lot of discussion f with the uh, like people who worked for the company <laughs> in the recent two months about like how we want to position ourselves and like nobody wanted to end up on, on this list of companies that are considered vanity presses. Um, so that, that's why I was afraid to say the word out loud, but yeah, I, I think it describes the model pretty well. Okay. And are you personally, um, do you see the business as that or are you, did you, I mean, when you were first evaluating the business, did you see it as that, or are you also res resisting that characterization? Uh, well, I, I think uh, when you take money from the author, uh, and as opposed to, uh, uh, as opposed to like uh, buying the copyright uh, and then like trying to market it, uh, it can always be called vanity press. Okay. Uh, 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 but the thing is that uh, is it unfair to the author, or is there anything um, sketchy about it? I uh, if if you just position yourself as a self-publishing company, uh, that there isn't. It's it's it, like it's a different narrative because okay. uh, it is the same as like sometimes you have venture funds, but you also have people who just do services for uh, startups, for example. Mm -hmm. So in uh, in this case, it, it's it's kind of similar, and you actually provide service that actually uh, brings value. It's not just that you you take money for like marketing and then like you don't. Uh, market um it, it uh, i i think it's it's more in this uh, picks and shovels uh, space where mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. there is a growing industry and you provide services to the creator economy i love how you you take everything back to silicon valley uh, <laughs> model models of thinking um so okay so the, now i'm understanding that the vanity press had a bad reputation or has a bad reputation because it is perceived to prey upon its clients that they take money from from these people who want to have a book and then really 
it doesn't kind of project doesn't do much or go anywhere. Does that sound right? Okay. Yes. Um, one other observation uh, that I meant to say earlier when we were talking numbers is it sounds like the margins are pretty good. So um, if it's doing six hundred thousand dollars a year and two hundred thousand or roughly two hundred thousand SDE, those are you know nice thirty percent, thirty plus percent margins. That mm-hmm. must have been attractive. Yes, and also, well, I, I was actually like not really like a, I, I still think that like when there is. Uh, when the margins are already high, then the, probably the company is already lean and there isn't much to improve. So it, it wasn't really an attraction to me, but uh, mm, the, there was yeah one more good thing about it, that the cash flow uh, cycle was really good. Uh, that Because the author could pay now, uh, like in the contractors who do the uh, actual editing or ghostwriting only get paid after the full project is delivered to the customer. So that was the, so it, it was in a way <laughs> bad for me because like I also like acquired some of the outstanding payments to contractors, but uh, for, for some projects that were fully paid in 2021. But uh, uh, overall, like the, yeah, it, it is very, 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 very good cash flow. Cycle. Yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, big big order value, and it all comes in up front, and then you you pay it down to the contractors only after after delivering. That's great. And so, how many full time? So, give me help me understand the um, the people involved in the in the business. So, all the writers and editors are on contract, right? And yes, the owner and his, the owner was obviously an employee, and then his wife was a kind of a book. Anyway, tell tell us what it how it worked. Yeah, out. so. Uh, the owner was the only uh, employee, and it was an LLC. So, yeah, he was the CEO and like the, the only person officially in the business. And then there were forty-five contractors who were paid mostly uh, uh, commissions on the uh, on the work. Um, so his wife, uh, I think, she didn't have a salary. She was just helping him as a family member. Oh, great! So, yeah. A new expense that's not doesn't even show up in the books that you're going to have to pay. Yeah, but I, I asked how many hours she spends per week, and I think she said four. He said like, "Oh no, you only spend one hour a week." But like, <laughs> it was part <laughs> of the first conversations. So that's the lay of the land in terms of people in the business. What did you? So now that we know the costs and 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 the revenue, how did you envision like? What change or growth or whatever? How did you envision changing the way that that, that cash is flowing through the business and out of the business um, once you took over? Because you're you're gonna if 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 nothing else, you're gonna lose your primary salesman in in the uh, in the founder. Yes. Uh, so, I think the approach was like Napoleon said: uh, "We just start and then we'll see." Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Napoleon is allowed to say that. The rest of us uh, maybe have to have a little bit of a plan, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I had a plan, but it was more of a high-level plan. So I already knew that uh, SBA uh, requires cash flow projections, but they do not really check every assumption. So I, I kind of had an optimistic plan that I already knew like probably wouldn't be true, the realistic plan and the pessimistic plan. So I presented the optimistic scenario to the SBA, um, then I didn't even fully calculate the realistic scenario, but I just uh, kind of had a 
high-level projections that like, okay, the, the business is profitable. I, I will give out less than half of it for the SBA loan. Um, and like, if there is any profit, so there should be 50% profit after that, at least. So like, if it did uh, 200K and it was always growing, then like, probably I will still have uh, maybe 100K left for the um, for myself. It would not justify living in Silicon Valley, but it it, it seems like low risk enough. Uh, and using that money, I can also pay a new salesperson, etc. So as l- if I can hire another salesperson and still have it profitable, uh, that's already a good deal. That's that's how I thought about it. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, so you had the you you were basically in your mind you were you had a hundred thousand dollars to. To, to play with, to, to use, to allocate in a certain way, and you were going to put that toward a tail, salesperson. Yes. Okay. So in so tell us what, what has happened since acquisition. Um, so uh, several things happened. Uh, uh, one thing was that, and that was also part of this high-level understanding, but um, it was... Uh, still, it still gave me some stress when it actually happened. One thing was that uh, uh, we did a calculation of accounts receivable minus accounts payable uh, uh, before the deal, and considering that most customers pay in advance, he uh, like basically it was part of the contract that the owner would give me the difference, so they gave me additional thirty k. But that was under the understanding that like most of the accounts receivable will be paid and with not much effort because that's already on, on in these outstanding invoices. Uh, so what happened was that uh, actually this invoice, outstanding invoices to customers required a lot of chasing. So it actually, yeah, it turned out that the owner actually spent a lot of time just chasing <laughs> invoices from the existing customers. And it also made sense because Basically, people who go after a company with uh, like this like weird website uh, <laughs> usually <laughs> uh, these are uh, people who have some issues getting published. Uh, again, like I'm talking about <laughs> our current customers, so like yeah, I wouldn't say these are all the people, but like yeah, there was a certain percentage of. Invoices where the where the author actually was in prison or uh, was going to get in prison soon, or uh, they just uh, were so old that actually, uh, for example, they they couldn't get access to their own money, or they just had issues paying online, or they they just so. Uh, all kinds of issues like that, and 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 that, that that's why he was spending a lot of time on the phone with the existing customers. Um, but but Tony, I have to interject. What about the the beautiful cash cycle, where the cash all comes in b- yeah, before for, any work is done? Yes, but for this, you need to actually get new sales in without the founder who did all the sales. So yeah, so mm-hmm. that the first part of the problem was that the actual invoices that were supposed to cover all of the outstanding payments to contractors, that they didn't fit in time, like when I need to pay the contractors. So for example, I need to pay uh, uh, 10K uh, this month, but the like 10K in invoice, uh, 
upcoming uh, invoices are only coming somewhere in January. So like, so I, I had some reserve for that, but it was still kind of stressful and it was hard to explain <laughs> uh, to uh, like to the previous owner when like we debated about certain details etc um the other thing that happened was it was also part of the realistic plan that uh, the new salesperson um was could not convert at the same rate as the previous owner so yes there were some sales in the first month the first month was profitable but partially because there were still all all these previous sales still getting paid um second month uh uh she she uh, pretty much could not close much and uh, considering she was on the commission basis it didn't make sense for her so she in the end she just like found another job uh so i i had to <laughs> repeat the experiment and who is this this she yeah, so basically, uh, yeah, it was also one of the things <laughs> that uh, kind of got discovered a little bit late, uh, that uh, when we made the deal, uh, I already let the owner know that I will probably find another person without the Russian accent who will do the sales. Um, and uh, he suggested uh, I uh, give new responsibilities to one of their existing uh, part-time contractors who previously was doing a lot of customer service and who basically had the role of a director of publishing. And he wrote a number of things that she did in the company in the last year. And it, I really, and it seemed like a really good deal because she was also happy to work on commission. Um, and I said yes. And then it turned out that this person was his daughter uh, from previous marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I mean, if I knew, I, I would probably still take the deal because it, it was like really good deal when you don't need to pay a salary to someone, right? But there is always this risk that like if, if it doesn't play out, uh, the the person can quit, especially when they're when they don't have the same type of uh, connection with me as with they had with their father, obviously. Sure. So so she goes for a month without really closing anything and then quits because she hasn't earned any money that month. And no, so she, she, closed, have... she actually closed uh, 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 a few deals. It just wasn't enough to basically... Uh, I, I, I don't, again, like, we don't know, like, what the truth is. So she said, she, she just said that, like, oh, I, I found this, uh, like, really good opportunity. And she basically worked in, in some uh, lab before. So... It, it was more of an academic career. Uh, and she did this thing on the side. But the sales job cannot be done uh, part-time. You you have to be on the phone. So, um, yeah, so basically she just found a job that wasn't related to sales or publishing, and that was what, what fit her education. So now you're left without a salesperson. Well, uh, that was kind of easy to fix because there was another person in the company who really wanted to do sales. And oh. yeah, basically it was a smooth transition, but uh, it still takes, like I knew that it would still take some ramping up time because the, the new person would, would know the product, but but still she, she had, she worked as a chief editor before, not as, not as a salesperson. 
I'm surprised that an editor would want to work in sales. I feel like those two types of people are not are not the same type of person. So, uh, well, uh, in our case, it's not really sales. Sales, it's more like consultative sales. And mm-hmm. I think I have understanding of the profile here because uh, I started in Google Ads uh, sales that were also not really sales, but more like consultative sales. And I think it's a different personality than when you actually go after big checks from Oracle or like, I mean, from these enterprise customers. When you do consumer sales, it's it's very much like customer service. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so does that take us up to the present? Is she is she your primary salesperson now? Yes. And she has the title of the executive director. So she's okay. So she's also the general manager or the person running the the entire business. Well, I I always knew like I needed like if previously it was the owner doing all the sales, it was part of the uh, value proposition as well. It just doesn't scale. So I knew if I have to replace him with someone, then this person should have a fancy title at least. <laughs> okay. Uh, so. So how how long has she been doing the sales and being the what did you say the executive chairman the executive, the executive director? director yes director um, so uh, she started on June uh, no on July first so okay basically so a month. five weeks yeah from now and and you're and you acquired the business in when was it was it May uh, I acquired it on. Uh, April 29th. So basically like then there was a weekend. So May 1st, let's say. Yes. Okay. Okay. And what, with all of this kind of, um, sales situation happening, what, what, what is the, what, what has it done to the numbers? What does the business look like today? Five, five weeks, or I should say three months after you've acquired it. Uh, uh, so cash wise, it's losing money, but, um, that was expected because there were all these old payments to contractors. So it has lost a lot of money cash-wise. Um, uh, what's important is kind of the uh, CAC to LTV. So basically mm-hmm. the customer acquisition cost and how much money the customers are paying. So in that respect, it's uh, like for the last month, it was slightly positive. Uh, Meaning that I reduced the marketing spend a lot by optimizing their existing ads campaign. So now we have the same number and quality of leads at two times cheaper. Um, and uh, the sales dropped as well, but there are some sales. I, they are very uh, unstable right now, but basically it, it, it bar- it, they barely cover the marketing spend for, for the last months. And is your, is this the executive director, is she improving week over week in terms of her scales, sales acumen? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Are you trained, are you training her? Cause you you said earlier that you felt comfortable and that you indeed, one of the things that you thought you saw yourself doing in this business is training salespeople and that you would say that you'd scale the sales function over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically um, I do not kind of coach her every day. And that was one of the issues of the business as well, that previously the company worked pretty much like a family, even though it had all the contractors. And I'm more 
data-driven and like looking into systems, etc. And I, I had a lot of disagreements with like basically people who were doing kind of some management work previously. So there were kind of the old lieutenants uh, with mm-hmm. like that the previous owner had. So they were still um, employed as contractors, but they actually did a lot of coordination work and basically management. Uh, so one of them left uh, in the first months I took over the company. Uh, then like the, the head of sales, uh, his daughter left as well. So uh, I had three left and they all had some debates with me. So as I said, the, this kind of industry, it has very different people from those working in tech. Um, and they are very emotional. They do not really <laughs> <laughs> like numbers, <laughs> etc. So, um, yeah, like we, we, I, I think we, we had uh, like a, a lot of cultural issues, but th- that are also preventing me from like actually building like system around some things. But there is already a lot of automation that I introduced that enables like scaling if needed like we have a toll-free number we have like workspace account like i have all the call recordings so uh, like there is call routing etc and like uh, there is calendly to book the uh, things and all of that didn't exist when the previous owner uh, he was just like picking up the phone or just like calling someone after they submitted the form but yeah but but he did that and it worked. <laughs> now everything is right, but <laughs> there is no money. Right. But you're laying yeah. a foundation and it, it costs money to lay a foundation. And, and, and um, yeah, this is the, the J curve, right? Where you, you, you lose money as you correct the unscaling aspects of the, of the pre under of, that existed under previous ownership, lay the foundation to hopefully meet and then exceed what what the revenue was doing under under the previous owner. Very interesting. Well, Tony, I'm having a hard time um, intuiting how you feel about things because you, you, your your tone of voice is is um, sunny and uh, smiling, but it sounds like it's been really hard. So tell me directly, how, how do you feel about this project, this acquisition? I think I'm just kind of motivated by stress. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think I, I was really stressed before, but I, I also, um, I, I guess it, it is kind of part of the adventure to, to have like all these uh, troubles. It just doesn't feel like it when you just have to see it and look into the numbers and then explain it. And that part I didn't like. But I think now it... Yeah, I feel like I I don't feel good about it, but I feel better than a month ago. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you are employed elsewhere, although not at Google. So you... So so tell tell us that situation and, and how... That you know, obviously, that you still have the security of a paycheck. Yes. So initially, when I did the calculation for the uh, SBA loan, I thought, okay, it's it's kind of a small deal, uh, and then uh, if if this thing completely um, flips down, I can still pay out the loan out of my salary. That was my initial mantra. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. 
so yeah, basically I did all, all the documentation for the SBA loan. I was keeping my job by then. Once the deal closed, uh, I gave my notice at Google. And the first month was still good money-wise. So yeah, I, I just gave my notice and thought, okay, like I, I have some runway to like try an experiment for at least a few months. Um, and then, uh, uh, but at the same time, I, I know that financially, like when, when I already know that the profit will be low and I still approach it more as a growth opportunity rather than something that like is stable. And so there would be ups and downs. Uh, I, I was just interviewing with some startups very passively. I, I think, yeah, like I, it, it's just like a, going after all of it. So I, I think career-wise, I always wanted to try to be in a high-growth startup for, for a while. Um, and yes, yeah, so when so basically when the deal was closing, I just randomly went to one of the interviews with a fully remote startup. Um, and I kind of clicked uh, with the hiring manager who also left since then. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Um, and yeah, and yeah, it was kind of a good offer. It also kind of fit my target statement in terms of what I wanted in a tech career for the next couple of years. And yeah, I basically I joined a series C startup in California that was remote and that would still kind of keep me in the tech space. So starting a new job and running a new business. So how how do the, how do your hours break down? How many hours uh, a week are you putting into right my wrongs, you, the business you acquired, and then how many hours are you giving your new your new job? So the new job is forty hours a week, uh, but uh, I didn't start it there right away. So I already had the offer uh, like maybe a week after I left Google, uh, the final offer, but. Um, I negotiated that I would start there in uh, three weeks and also have a week of vacation. Uh, so the 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 first month uh, after the acquisition, I was able to spend as much time as needed on 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 the business, and it, it didn't feel great. I, I pretty much felt locked uh, in there. So actually, when I so I I, I think I was still uh, spending less than forty hours a week because I. Because I am generally lazy and unproductive, so, and that was also one of the reasons why I wanted to like do it on the side. Because I know that I'm never one hundred percent focused on anything, and like if I have eight hours on a day to work on something, I will still spend one hour in the end of the day when I'm like feeling that I already need to go to sleep. Yeah, yeah, I think like most people in tech are procrastinators, mm, and then yeah, and then. Uh, when I started, uh, I'm uh, in a product management role, so um, it, it's not the same as, like, it's not the same as, on one hand, uh, like, being on the calls on the, all the time when you just have to be on the calls to close sales, and it's not like software engineering where, like, you, you need a lot of uninterrupted time for, like, building things, so... I'm not sure but like how it goes but so far it's it's manageable and it was a good distraction from all these uh, unfancy troubles in the business. 
And, and how, how much time are you giving the business now? Right my wrongs. Mm, so maybe uh, like one or two uh, hours per day during the weekdays. And then like the, the new things uh, that I'm trying to do, I usually do them on the weekend. So I, I would say, and also I procrastinate a lot. So I would say it's it's probably 10 hours per week or 12 hours per week. Okay. Okay. And is this something that you're seeing other people in Silicon Valley do? Uh, any of your colleagues or friends? Did, did you... Are they doing this? Were you influenced by them? Did you tell them that you're buying a business and did they get excited about it or understand it or think you were crazy or what? The first time I met other acquisition entrepreneurs was in the acquisition lab. And there, I, I think in my cohort, I was the only person from the Bay Area. Um, uh, so when I, when, I, when I left Google in my um, uh, goodbye email, I wrote that I, I want to... Uh, take a stab at entrepreneurship uh, or something like that. And yeah, some people were asking and I told them that I acquired the business. Uh, and yeah, I think they were kind of interested, but it, it, it wasn't a big deal. Uh, yeah, I think everybody saw that I, I start a normal tech startup and I didn't give too much details. So, yeah, so there's there's nothing here where it's like, this buy then build book is being read widely at Google or something. You are an odd duck doing this uh, among your cohort. Mm. No, yeah, beca just because uh, uh, the calculations that are provided in the buy then build is like, okay, you put 100K down, you buy 1 million business, then like, uh, then you grow it like to maybe 200K in profit, et cetera. But like all of this is below the junior level salary at Google. So it's it's just not interesting for like, for like most techies. If, if somebody else wants to... Um maybe somebody from the tech industry or elsewhere uh, wants to get your opinion or reach out, what's the best way to do that? Uh, they can reach out at Tony at rightmywrongs.co if they are interested in <laughs> publishing a book, for example. Uh, and uh, yeah, that would, and they could also check out the website. <laughs> That's, that would be nice. It's rightmywrongs.co. <laughs> right w-r-i-t-e i'll put a link in the show notes to that yes really interesting um undertaking by you tony thanks a lot for coming on acquiring minds and sharing it with us thank you thank you